everyone. Welcome back to Tent Talks. We are back for part two with Christy and Sarah. We've been talking about deconstructing, unfucking your brain, questioning the premise. If you haven't listened to the previous episode with them, you might want to go back just to get a little background because we are continuing the conversation. Let's dive a little bit deeper into questioning the premise. Sarah, do you have a step that you want to share a step further into yeah, questioning the I, premise? Right. I do. So I think there are some really useful tips or just almost like life hacks into the idea of questioning the premise. Because underneath anything that you want to question, there could be a lot of things to question. But some really common ones really common underlying premises are that X, whatever it is, is good or bad. So like the example I gave earlier, you only left the church because you were offended. The the underlying premise is that leaving the church because you were offended is bad, you know, and you question that premise. Another would be X is important or unimportant. That like maybe whatever concern you have, whatever criticism, whatever you're going through is either not that important or You know, another one I I think that comes up in conversation a lot in my experience is the idea of like needing spiritual structure. You know, if you leave the church, you won't have spiritual structure. You won't have community. You won't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think something that underlies those sorts of statements is the idea that spiritual structure is necessary or important or that community is important. Now, when I say that, I believe community is important. When you're questioning these premises, you might find like, okay, that is a premise. And I actually agree with that. But then you can take it a step further and say, is Mormon community healthy? Has Mormon community been healthy for me? And in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. So let me kind of investigate that a little bit. Is it true that I won't find community somewhere else? You know, you can kind of keep going deeper and deeper. But I think in general, those ideas of like good or bad, important, unimportant, those are some really almost like beginner friendly ways of questioning the premise. If there's anything that, that you read somewhere or that someone, you know, maybe a a well-intentioned family member sends you a quote from a general conference talk and you're like, I feel weird about this, but I'm so like accustomed to this language that I, I don't even know quite how to pick it apart. Start looking for the premises underneath it that imply that something is either good or bad or important or unimportant. And I think another tip would just be in general, like defining terms and investigating those definitions. Something Christy and I talked about a lot recently, along with a number of other Instagram influencers that we love, was this kind of binary that's often set up in the church of like church doctrine versus church culture. Mm. And people talk about them like they're these very distinct things. And I think one way of questioning the premise of that is to say, well, how are we defining these terms? People don't usually bother to define them when they declare that something is either doctrine or culture. But as you're questioning it, you can take that step. You can ask for those definitions. You can seek them out for yourself. And you can decide whether those definitions really hold up to scrutiny, you know? I think it's really important to talk about these tips because there's like a part of me that feels like I have arrested development when it comes to critical thinking, because Mm -hmm. I'm telling you in college at a university level, because I went to BYU, Idaho, 
I did not learn about evolution. I did not learn about critical thinking. We started classes with prayers and doctrine, and then education was a subset to that. So like, I didn't learn these skills and I didn't learn them in regular, Mm -hmm. typical, like learning institutions, like other people maybe did that were, you know, my age. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually just today talking with another friend about that, a a non-Mormon friend, actually, about some of these dynamics of infantilization within the Mormon church. And she said something so brilliant. She says, an oppressive religion turns all of its followers into children. And it really does. It prevents you- Children of God. Literally, literally, when your entire identity just gets subsumed within that, that you never have to do just literally the the very kind of like basic, core, essential developmental work of a human in coming into your own identity, in experiencing the world in its fullness, and as the world is, and not, you know, whatever kind of more sheltered Mormon, smaller community that you are told to live in it really truly does stunt you in very, very real and serious ways. So that makes sense. It makes sense for you to say like, I never learned how to do this. I never learned how to think like this. Yeah, you didn't. And that was the point. That was the point. Uh, One thing that I see everywhere in Mormon thought and and in broader society too, I will say, uh, are thought terminating cliches, just words or phrases that people fire off to just like stop you from thinking further and you will see this. Oh my gosh. The list of these thought terminating cliches in Mormonism is so profound, but you know, one example might be doubt your doubts, doubt. Wait, what is it? I love your doubts before you doubt your faith. Yes. Listen to any, any general conference will be just a new book of thought terminating cliches. It's almost like every single general conference talk is designed around a different type of thought terminating cliche. That's just basic brain control, mind control stuff. It's subconscious programming. And once you learn that, it kind of feels scary, but it feels empowering to know that and then call it what it is. That's, yeah. Yeah. If you, and I just barely did this. If you Google LDS thought terminating cliche, you'll find lots of examples. That's the first one on this person's list is the doubt your doubts one. He was speaking as a man, not as a prophet. Wickedness never was happiness. That isn't necessary for our salvation. We'll find out the answer when we die. Mm. Everything happens for a reason. I mean, obviously that's not a a specifically or an exclusively Mormon one, but. Mention is of the devil or no no success can compensate for failure in the home. These are ways to control people and to control their actions and their thoughts and their identities. Yes. I've had too many spiritual experiences to ever deny fill in the blank that the church is true, that Joseph Smith was a prophet, like the, and, and you'll find these a lot in people's testimonies too. And I think Stacy, I think you're exactly right that, that you weren't taught how to think this way. And in fact, like, I think there's, whether it's intent, you know, consciously intended or not, it's very, very useful to the institution to have people who rely on thought terminating cliches as the foundation of their testimony or of their obedience, because then they're not questioning the premises of anything. I mean, when the prophet speaks, the thinking is done. Like that's another one. You know, we, it's, it's very, very useful for us not to have these critical thinking skills and they're, they're hard to develop. 
they are genuinely so hard to develop. Yeah, I can't even go to not even a fast and testimony meeting. I could never go to another fast and testimony meeting again because it would just be, it would make my skin crawl. It'd be so hard for me to sit there and to hear each testimony, which is basically just a, 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 a haiku of like terminating <laughs> cliches longer than a haiku. But that's really hard for me to sit in here. It's really, really hard for me to physically sit there and to listen to those things. And not even in a fast and testimony meeting, but in any Sunday service at a Mormon church, whether that is at the end of, you know, everyone always kind of bears a short testimony at maybe the end of a sacrament talk that they're giving or during gospel doctrine classes or even in comments that they, that they raise to say, you can just pick them off one by one. And it's really, it's disturbing. Honestly, it's really disturbing. I don't, that's not a space that I physically can let myself be in anymore because it's just too triggering for me. It's too hard. I just can't sit there and like, listen to it happen. I want to explode. Yeah. I want to explode when I, when I listen to that. So it's really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I feel like it's okay to say that too. It's yeah. okay for, for you to step back because there, there became this point or this time in my exiting journey where I was just going to be the yes person to everybody. And then mm-hmm. I really had to step back and say, no, I just need to be my yes person for me and learn boundaries. But that was another thing that the church did yeah. for me is they taught me not to have any boundaries. And I feel like that completely falls into line with the next thing that we're going to talk about. And that is like the premise of partnership because we're all codependent and we all don't know what partnership means <laughs> because we, we do it from this hierarchical framework of like, and so it just kind of blows my mind to now like deconstruct partnership and relationships and like seeking, I don't know, mutually beneficial reciprocal relationships. Yeah. 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 Can you guys speak to that? I think we both could. I don't even know. (laughs) Oh, we're both like chomping at the bit to speak to this. (laughs) So true. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, continuing this work of unfucking your mind, it really, it has its tendrils in so many parts of your life. And one of the most significant is in terms of relationships. Like for one thing, if you grew up Mormon, you grew up believing or be at least being taught that a heterosexual marriage in the temple was an essential like step and a non-negotiable step in your progression as like a soon to be God or goddess or whatever we had going on. Like the nature of consent, the nature of like voluntary association or love is very, very much undermined by a doctrine that tells you, you have to get married, whether you like it or not. And you have to have kids, whether you like it or not, your desires are not really part of the equation here. And so I think for a lot of people who leave the church and I, I feel like most, I probably speaking more so experience with women who leave the church, because that's mostly my social circle. That's who will come and talk to me and kind of share their experiences with me, understanding how many relationships you entered into involuntarily or unconsciously or out of obligation is truly one of the most devastating things to try to unpack Mm -hmm. because maybe you love your spouse or maybe you love your kids. And at the same time, you might recognize like 
I entered into this dynamic under duress. This was not my choice. We would really be doing ourselves a disservice if we if we didn't recognize how often that happens for all kinds of reasons, economic reasons, cultural reasons for people all over the world and all throughout time. But no, the, the continuing work to look at what partnership, maybe in a romantic relationship, in a marriage, in a long-term committed relationship, partnership as a co-parent, partnership with your children, partnership with your friends, with your family members, understand like unfucking your expectations around that is true. I mean, you could take up your entire life just doing that and it would be incredibly, like it would be worthy work. That would be a worthy use of your time. Because I think you're right, Stacey, codependence is one of the biggest things, like (laughs) trying to untangle codependence from love. That's, that's a shit show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because I can't think of a more codependent conception of marriage and relationships than one that says you must perform a certain way in order for us to live together Mm. after we die. If you change, if you are not static, if you do something wrong, you implicate me in all of that. And so we all need to do the same things to perform the same way or else we're going to be separated forever when we die. Like, And Those that's are- on you, kid. You you messed up. You messed this up for our entire family. Yep. And so marriage and so parenthood becomes not this exercise in love, but in performance and in people staying the same and in not allowing or having any tolerance for people changing, for real identity, for any of that process. Yeah. <laughs> It is a lot, but I think, and Christy earlier mentioned Bell Hooks and her book, All About Love. And I think that book is a really fantastic one. If anyone's kind of looking for a place to start here. And and sometimes it really does take like stripping things down to the floorboards and saying, I'm going to try to start fresh. What's love again? Because in the church, I learned that it was conditional. I learned you showed your love in all these ways that to me now do not feel that loving you know, and, and kind of the gaslighting feeling of that, of having people tell you they love you as they are actively telling you not to grow or actively telling you that they don't accept a key part of you, you know, you really might have to start from the ground up trying to understand, okay, what is love? And also like renegotiating what you might want out of a partnership, partnership of all kinds. What are kind of the minimum requirements for you? And it is, not easy, but I think it can be really invigorating. You know, it can be difficult. Every, every situation is going to be different, but I think there is at least the potential for it to be difficult in a way that makes you feel like, oh, wow, this, this is going to be, this is going to be big. I can feel the enormity of the change that this could make. Yeah. And that really ties in with what you were saying earlier about questioning the premise, like kind of one tactic or hack around that is getting down to definitions Mm -hmm. and definitions of things as basic as love, things that we don't even think to define for ourselves because we are given cultural definitions. We, you know, we watch movies, we look at friends, we see what other people are doing and we assume that love looks a certain way, that it operates a certain way within and for people it's a whole different thing to come to those definitions of yourself and to really sit and think with what those are and mean to you. And one way, you know, 
kind of moving away from dichotomies or from binaries, from good, bad, or, or all, all those assumptions is to think of the question, is this satisfying? And that's something that Sarah has talked about a lot is this idea of satisfaction and in reframing our approach to the world, our approach to ourselves around those terms. And so, for example, you talk about, well, if I leave the Mormon church, like I won't have a community anymore, to which I ask, is that community satisfying to you? Is the Mormon conception of community satisfying? Because it seems it seems a little conditional to me. It seems a little rigid to me. Um, it seems pretty insular to me. Yeah, and to it seems very group, shallow. Yeah, yeah. I, I say, what kind of a community even is that? Like, yes, it is a community for sure. But is that community satisfying? These are the levels that it takes. You know, this is when we say like leaving the church is the first step, not the end. Like this is what we're talking about. And this is the exhausting and invigorating work of then moving past that point to ask these types of questions that you can't even get to if you're still in the church. Yeah. My sister, she often tells me that, that I'm too intense and I need to kind of slow my role on my passion because if you're not doing this work and if you don't get it, you might just feel the exhaustion and not the invigoration because the invigorating part is that you do feel satisfaction maybe for the first time ever in your life. And maybe it's just because you've got to define that for yourself. Yes. Yeah. And at the same time, I want to point out, you know, this, I, I don't think um, Christy or I or, or you, Stacey, would want to imply that like this work needs to be taking up like 24 hours of your day every day. Like I think Christy was the one who said like after she left the church, she spent like three years just vibing. Like really? just because, you know, you really got to take some time or it's it's perfectly fine to take some time and be like, I'm just going to chill. I've been trying to to I've been hanging on to a cliff face for however many years, trying not to leave the church, trying to keep my head above water, like Chris was saying. And that was hard. And I, I need a break. Yeah. And the whole unfucking your mind thing, it's just that you're ready to do it when the opportunity arises. It's not like you have, you know, a 12 week course, like I'm going to unfuck my mind over these 12 weeks. And it's, you know, I've got to kind of do my homework on it. It's just that over time, you might notice there's a little thing you might like, you might notice that um, maybe you have teenage daughters and they're dressing in a way that's like you would never have dressed as a teenager because it was immodest and it makes you feel some things. And you might go, okay, like that's a thing. Like I'm going to sit with that a little bit. Like I need to unfuck my mind on this now. And you just kind of let that ride. And that can be, uh, there can be moments of intensity in that. There can also be moments of humor, um, moments of kind of like calm realization it's not a slog or I don't want it to be a slog for myself or for anybody. Like you unfuck your mind over decades and it mixed in with that is a lot of joy and, and a lot of rest. You know, it's not, it's not like balls to the wall, unfuck your mind immediately. (laughs) Time's running out. No, you, this is because that I think, and that kind of approach is kind of a A missionary approach that feels very much approach. Yeah. Yeah. That feels like a mission. Um, it does. And it sounds like, you know, kind of all the checklist items, following the commandments, like, you know, listening to general conference and like filling up your bingo card, like just trying to always be so intense and like by the letter, life doesn't have to be like that. And I think honestly, giving yourself room to, to be kind of slovenly about all of this is, is potentially a really 
important part of unfucking your mind. Let it, yeah. Letting it take time, not feeling like that you have to be at your best by the next temple recommend interview because you can just like take your time with it. I love that. It can be chaotic. It can be slovenly. It can be hilarious. There's so many things. <laughs> yes, you can make a fool of yourself. You can fall on your ass trying to do this. You, mm-hmm. you very well might go, oh my gosh, I wound up in another cult. Whoops, you know, it happens all the time. Like, anyway, and you just, sucks, but it is funny. It is funny. <laughs> I think we've all done it a little. <laughs> we've all done it a little. It happens. It's just what happens. You just end up and thinking of yourself as this endless kind of like self-improvement project in a way is like a cult. I mean, like we talked about wellness earlier too, like trying to make yourself the best possible version of yourself. That can be a cult in a sense. And if you're on the lookout for that, that's something you can kind of shut down and say, nah, I don't, I don't need to be the best. I just need to be myself yeah. right now and just vibe. Yeah. Oh, I'm loving this conversation. I want it to go on forever because I'm just, as we talk about things, I'm just sitting and sinking with myself deeper because, you know, like I'm at a certain stage of all these processes too. And so it, it brings up all this personal work for me that I'm currently sifting through, but you know, it just Mm -hmm. kind of, I think the natural unfurling of it is the beautiful part it's allowing and it's, yeah, it feels good. Do you guys have any more questions? Last week we ended with a question from a subscriber of one of yours. Do you guys have another question that you want to pull out from my Instagram followers. Yeah, I do. And actually there are two, two different people submitted questions that felt like they were very, very similar. So I want to read both of them and then we can just kind of riff. Here's the first one. How do you have any sort of conversation with someone who sees their version of facts, logic, God, and science, which they put in, in uh, quotes, as superior to feelings and lived experience. Is it even worth it to? Literally nothing I say is even worth considering because it doesn't fit their very specific criteria. And then somebody else said, how do I talk to my mom about the lies she tells? I called her out yesterday and she just told me that I am, quote, seeking my truth of what I think that that wasn't what happened, but it is most definitely what happened. And I have witnesses. It's a pattern that has happened since I was a child, and I don't know how to get her to at least acknowledge what she said and did. So I think, you know, kind of this this theme of trying to talk to somebody in your life that you care about, about, <laughs> about your own experience and having them reject it. And this the first person said, is it even worth it to talk about it with them? Like nothing I say is even worth considering. How, and the other person, how do I get her to acknowledge you know, what happened? Like when those two questions both came through, I thought, oh, we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about, um, you know, the first person didn't specify the relationship, but I feel like this does happen a lot in relationships of parent to child. Um, we're just talking about this to engage with, with what actually happened. And of course people have, people are going to remember experiences differently, but that's always the case. And yet most people still find a way to respect the other person that they're talking to and navigate that and see what kind of common ground they can find in that. 
something like leaving the church or confronting a parent about a pattern of maybe abuse or, or deception, you know, that, that dynamic kind of, kind of breaks down and, and you feel like, am I taking crazy pills? Like, am I being gaslit right now? It's really, I just felt a lot of pain in both of those questions. I think one thing that stands out to me in both of those questions too, and this hyper reliance on facts and logic to which I can say what facts, what logic, who defines those, they're probably defined by the other person and like actually aren't um, objective. <laughs> if I had to venture, I guess to me, that is a person who is very afraid. That sounds like a person who's very, very afraid who is saying, please, the stakes are so high for me. I can't or don't know how to engage on this other plane. And so I have to control it to what I know or to what I think that I know. And I think that it's really, as hard as it is, it's really important and can help you have compassion to see and hear the fear behind how people are trying to control the conversation. You know, when I hear about someone who just only wants to stick to facts and logic, no feelings, to me, that sounds like a terror. When, you know, this, the second person talking about um, not getting any validation or you're misremembering that, or that's not how it happened. Again, that feels to me coming from a place of fear, like, please don't mess with my narrative. I have a narrative for my life. I have a narrative for our relationship. Do not do anything that puts that narrative in jeopardy because I am clinging so tight to it. My identity is so tied to it that you wanting to change that narrative in any way is a threat to my very essence, is a threat to my very self, my like my conception of who I am. And so I, in both of those responses, with both of those relationships, whatever the form, I hear fear on the side of the other person. And that makes it really hard to have a vulnerable conversation. It makes it really hard to have an honest conversation and to be heard and to really be heard when you're running up against so much fear in a person. The only thing that I know how to do that I am still working, and I'm not saying, I'm literally, I'm talking about this in therapy right now. I am not an expert. I'm literally learning how to do this like in the last like two months. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I don't know how to do it that well. But what I am trying to do is to just say what I feel and to not, to not lecture, to not make it about kind of other ideas. You know, when you start talking about things like racism or homophobia about the church or whatever, like, yes, those things are important, but like, what do you feel? How did that make you feel? What was your experience with it? If you can tie it to that at the end of the day, it's sometimes the best that you can do because these headier concepts for people or like intellectualizing your feelings or your experience while very valid and like deserves to be heard probably isn't going to land. All you can do is just insist on what you feel in spite of someone who says stick to facts and logic. Too bad. Don't give, don't concede ground to that. Just make it about your feelings. I say, say, okay, too bad. <laughs> I'm going to keep on saying what I feel because your experience is all that you have and your feelings are all that you have. And so the more that you can triangulate the conversation around that for you as excruciating as it is, because you're having to offer yourself up, you're having to basically say, here are my scars, here are my wounds. I'm showing them to you. Please see them. Will you see them? And sometimes they won't. And that's brutal. But I think you can rest your head on your pillow at the end of the night 
knowing that you led with your feelings, knowing that you stuck to those and that you had the self-respect to bring that to them. And at the end, self-respect will take you so much further than this external validation from the other, from the person, no matter what the relationship is, no matter who it is, whether it's your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, your brother, your sister, your partner, self-respect will take you where you need to go. Not validation from this other person, not them understanding you, not them saying you were right, or I get it, or, oh my God, like I see the light now that would be nice, but it's probably not going to happen. So all that you have is your self-respect and you will give yourself self-respect if you say what you feel. And if you say what happened to you, mm. I love that. That was a sermon. That yeah. was preach. huge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got it from my therapist. Um, I, I, <laughs> what? I got it from my therapist. I can't take credit. <laughs> <laughs> but you convey it with such vigor and mm-hmm. so, so convincingly. I should. Um, oh, hey, maybe. <laughs> Because the job opening. <laughs> um, I really think that point about self-respect is huge. And what that reminds me of is basically going into these conversations with a very clear understanding of what is yours to control and what isn't, and how you can measure success. So, like one example, when I knew I was done with the church. I didn't tell my family for a long time. I was nervous about that conversation and I finally was ready to have it. And I remember going into that conversation specifically with my mom first. And I really tried beforehand to, um, I think I read the book, the dance of anger by Harriet Lerner. And that was huge. Can't, can't recommend it enough. And in the dance of anger, Harriet Lerner talks about how often we will feel like a, a conversation is a success just dependent on how the other person responds, right? If we manage their emotions effectively and they don't get mad at us or they aren't upset or whatever, then we know that that's a success. But she she suggests like tweaking that idea of success so that it's about your own actions. And so I went into that conversation with my mom thinking, I will know that I have been successful in this conversation if I tell the truth as clearly as I can. You know, I wanted to tell her I was done with the church. I wanted to lay the expectations out very clearly. Like I'm not going to be baptizing my kids. I'm, I would love to be invited to family events at church. You know, like I wanted to kind of communicate my desires, I suppose. I wanted to communicate that clearly. And if I communicated with love for her and that was it. And then that way it didn't matter if she was mad at me. It didn't matter if she Um, said hurtful things. It didn't matter if she cried or I cried. It didn't matter if we hugged at the end. I could know that I had been successful in that conversation. If I had had the respect for myself to say how I feel and what I want is worthy of being expressed and I am going to express it. Mm. And so then at the end of that conversation, I did feel like I was successful. And so when it comes to these conversations where you're trying, you really want your mom to acknowledge the truth. And you really want um, the person you're talking to, to like make some room for the fact that you have feelings and you had an experience and it's not all just about like data and like putting it in a spreadsheet. Like you can want that from them, but their reaction is not going to be a reliable indicator of your success in those conversations. Can you feel like you had success if, if you can just say, mom, this is what happened. 
this is how I remember it. I care about you. I want us to be close. I want us to navigate this. Like, if that's how you feel, then communicating that means it was a success. Whether she says, yeah, me too. Let's figure it out. Or whether she throws you out of the house. That doesn't mean her throwing out of the house would be throwing you out of the house would be okay or that it wouldn't hurt or that you wouldn't need to like process that. You definitely would, but you could process it knowing I care about myself. I showed up for myself. I was my own protective parent in that instance. And you like the way Christy put it, you can rest your head easy at night knowing that, knowing that you didn't further betray yourself in addition to feeling the betrayal of your own parent or loved one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful ending point is just at the end of the day, it it is about your relationship with yourself. And in our upbringing, we were taught it was about everybody else's expectations or how they felt about us. And it, and it really truly is about your own narrative, your own relationship with yourself and, and the integrity you have with yourself. And that's And that in and of itself is a journey into self-discovery. And that's why we do the deconstruction and defining things. And yeah, that's the big invitation to all of this work is so that you can have a relationship with yourself so that you can be aligned and stop self-abandoning and self-betraying because that's what's bringing the pain. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you both for being on here. This has been such a beautiful conversation. And again, the best places to find you guys are on Instagram, right? Yeah. Cottonwood woman and (laughs) yo kissy. (laughs) Yep. Out there plunking away, doing the Lord's work on Instagram story. (laughs) Great. Oh my God. Thank you. Love you you so much, Stacey. Yeah. Yeah. Love you too.